colors. Fill with plates with bright colors, bright red, bright, bright green, bright yellow. In fact, I did that this morning. <laughs> Nutrition could be this easy and it was delicious. M&M's to the rescue. Again. Can we have some? Yeah. I'll pass them around after. Tina Vandermore was very gracious and uh, she, of course, as many of you, went on the wonderful trip to Israel and she was kind enough to supply a few overheads here that I wanted to share with you before I get into the, the lecture. And this is, this is very fascinating because this is the entire area of Caesarea. Am I, am I correct on that, Tina? Yes. Okay, here, the entire area of Caesarea was huge. Then, right here, the tooth. Yeah, the little. The next picture you're going to see is of the uh, of this right here. Oh, this, here. Okay. there it is. Yeah, it's it is. the the area where they spoke. This is where they had their performances. This is where the people stood and where Paul, if he was allowed, was allowed to share with his people. Now, when you see how big that is, she'll show you an overhead of how that little piece is right there, that little round piece right there. That's this right there is this right here. And those, that's how little a person is in this. And then you put that little piece in that huge piece, and that was Caesarea. That's where Paul was held and where the Roman soldiers would have. They had like a spa there. Herod had a three-story palace there. It's quite impressive. But I just want to have you have some idea of where he was sent because it was, it's phenomenal. Thank you, Tina. I think that was so fascinating, and I'm, I'm glad that you provided those today. Thank you very much. Verse 1 of chapter 23 starts at a very illogical spot. So I'm going to review for just a few tiny minutes to explain why Paul is standing before this unofficial assembly of the Sanhedrin. So looking back, we see Paul preaching to a large group of Jewish men. The mob is listening to him until he mentions the Gentiles. That word sets the spark to the tinder of their wrath, especially when Paul states that God told him that he would be sent to the Gentiles. Immediately, the men began to shout and fling off their cloaks and throw dust in the air and scream for Paul's death. It was total chaos. The Roman Tribune, watching all this, ordered Paul to be removed and taken to the barracks to be questioned and flogged in order to restore the confession from him. As they tied up Paul to flog him, he calmly asked if it were legal to scourge a Roman citizen. Paul explained that he had not bought his citizenship as the Tribune had, 
but was born of parents who were Roman citizens. The Tribune wanted to discover exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. He knew he would not receive accurate information from the mob, so he decided that the proper course of action would be to conduct a hearing in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin to determine if there really were legal grounds for procedures against Paul. Now, this is the fifth time that the Sanhedrin had conspired against the Christian movement. The first time was, of course, when at the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second time was when Peter and John appeared before the Sanhedrin, and we study that in Acts 4. The third time is when the apostles were arrested, that's in Acts 5. And then, of course, when Stephen preached before them so powerfully, as described in Acts 6. And now the fifth time when Paul is appearing before them. There are three things that I can find in Scripture that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were part of the Sanhedrin, agreed on. Get rid of Jesus, get rid of Paul, and stop the Christian movement. So, here we are, ready to pick up the story at verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. And he says, Men and brothers, I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. Now, it's important to know that Paul was not claiming sinlessness. He lived, his conduct was measured by the law that he lived to the best of his ability, as described in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Paul could honestly say that he had lived a moral and religious life. Sins committed before his conversion, including the persecution of Christians, Paul had readily confessed and received forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ. But in respect to the charges brought against him by the Jews, Paul considered himself blameless. He knew that he lived as a Jew who was faithful to God. Verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike Paul on the mouth. Now the word strike does not mean a slap. It means coming at someone with a full fist or even with a club. To Ananias, Paul was a perverter of the Jewish religion who deserved to be humiliated and condemned. But to punch Paul was illegal. After all, he had not even been proved guilty of anything. But Ananias was known for his vicious ways and his violent manner. Our dear Lord Jesus had also been struck in the face, John 18, 22. But his reaction was to merely inquire whether he had said anything wrong and and then he asked the official who had struck him why he had done this. What restraint, what majesty from our king. By contrast, 
Paul failed to follow his master's example. Verse 3, Paul said to him, God is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, a whitewashed wall was a wall that was painted on the outside to look really nice, but if you leaned on it, it would fall over. Paul was stating that Ananias was a hypocrite. He continued, you sit judging me according to the law, but by ordering me to be struck, you yourself break the law. Back in Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus had called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs that hide the bones of the dead, and the Sadducees, to whom Ananias belonged, were no better. Those who were standing nearby asked Paul, do you dare to insult the high priest of God? Paul answered, I did not know, brothers, that it was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul's statement in verse 5 is best explained in the fact that he did not see conduct of a high priest in Ananias. And because he had been gone from Jerusalem for many years, he may not have recognized him. And especially if Paul's eyesight was poor, this was, after all, an informal meeting. The high priest didn't have on his high priestly garments and wasn't sitting in his high priestly chair. And there, by the way, were about 71 people crowded into that hall. So the voice of this man just came out of the crowd. Whatever the reason, because Paul was an expert in the law, he immediately quoted Exodus 22:28. When called to account, Paul did not apologize Rather, he showed respect for the office of high priest, but not the man, and there is a difference. Ananias was one of the most corrupt men ever to be named high priest. He stole tithes from other priests, and he was ruthless in doing whatever it took to give himself more authority and power. He was known as a brutal man who cared more for Rome's favor than Israel's welfare. Ananias' hateful act convinced Paul that he would not receive a fair hearing before the Sanhedrin. Accordingly, he decided on a bold step. Increase the tensions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and increase the split between them. Now, Ananias and many other members of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees whose beliefs rejected angels and the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in hell and they didn't believe in heaven. No wonder they were so sad, you see. <laughs> Conversely, the Pharisees believed in bodily resurrection and the hierarchy of angels and demons and they believed in heaven and hell. And as a Pharisee, Paul believed in the doctrine of resurrection. As a Christian, the teaching of the resurrection took on new significance for him because it was eternally and inseparably linked to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Now in Old Testament times, the doctrine of resurrection was taught. A familiar verse to many of us would be Daniel 12, 2, where it says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, and others to shame and everlasting contempt. And 1 Corinthians 15, 16 states, for if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. So just as Paul figured, the doctrine of resurrection caused a great uproar. The Sadducees and the Pharisees are yelling and really arguing with each other. And then, verse 9, the Pharisees who hated Paul said, we find no evil in this man. The Pharisees were willing to side with Paul in order to make their theological point against the Sadducees. The Pharisees said, well, what if an angel or a spirit did talk to him? And then the Sadducees yelled, there are no angels, there are no spirits, how many times do we have to say this? And they began arguing and yelling all over again. So things got so bad that the Tribune thought Paul would be torn to pieces. So he ordered the soldiers to intervene and take Paul to Herod's castle for protection, the Tower of Antonia. It's wonderful that after all this uproar that we come to one of the most peaceful and encouraging verses in the book of Acts, verse 11. The Lord stood by Paul's side and said, take courage. Luke mentions five special appearances of the Lord Jesus to Paul at critical points in his life. A few years after his conversion, when Paul's life was in danger in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in the temple and told him what to do. That's Acts 22. When Paul was discouraged in Corinth and contemplating going elsewhere, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and encouraged him. Acts 18. And now when Paul was at a low point in his ministry, Jesus appeared once again to encourage him and tell them that his desire to go to Rome would be granted. The other two examples of the Lord appearing are found in Acts 27 and 2 Timothy. Some other great verses that can be an encouragement to all are Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always, says the Lord Jesus Christ. What great assurance for all of us. And Psalm 42 says, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me. The Lord's message to Paul was one of courage. It was also a message of commendation. He commended Paul for the witness he had given, even though the message had not been received. For when Paul, Paul's days in Jerusalem, we see that many things failed. His attempt to win over the legalistic Jews only helped to create a, a riot, and his witness to the Sanhedrin left the men in an uproar. But, but, the Lord Jesus was pleased with Paul's testimony, and that's all that matters. Thirdly, the message to Paul was one of 
confidence Paul would go to Rome. That had been his desire for many months, Acts 19. The day following the explosive Sanhedrin meeting, the Jews took an oath, 40 of them took an oath not to eat or drink until Paul was killed. But those 40 fanatical, scheming religious leaders had forgotten that Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and that the exalted Lord was watching from heaven. As King Solomon observes in Proverbs 21.30, God rules and overrules. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. And Isaiah 8.10 says, God laughs at men's deliberations and thwarts his schemes. God in his great care providentially allowed Paul's young nephew to overhear of the plot to kill Paul. When the captain heard the young lad's story, Lysias ordered 200 soldiers, plus horsemen, plus spearmen, and took Paul on horseback at night to Caesarea. That was one well-guarded prisoner. <laughs> the captain wrote a letter to Governor Felix to hear Paul's case. Paul was kept under guard in Herod's castle and was safe from his Jewish enemies. Chapter 24. Ananias and the Sanhedrin brought charges to Governor Felix against Paul. Now, they didn't want to do it alone, so they hired a smooth tongue, slick, oily lawyer character by the name of Tertullus to do the talking for them. And they just sat back and let Tertullus begin. His opening remarks were loaded with patronizing flattery. He praised Felix for his peaceful rule, even though civil unrest had actually increased and become worse under Felix. Tertullus presented three charges against Paul. Paul was a troublemaker, causing a riot in the temple, and not only in the temple, but in the whole world. Yes, sir, Bob, in the whole world. <laughs> Paul was a leader of the religious sect, and Paul had defiled the temple. These charges were cleverly designed because under Gallio, faith in Jesus was viewed as a subset of Judaism, and as such, Rome would not view it as illegal. But anything that disturbed the peace established by Rome, the Pax Romana, would not be tolerated. Tertullus tried to frame the case to make it appear that Paul had instigated a riot in the temple and in doing so had violated Roman law. In his defense, Paul denied the charges and said that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship God. Paul states, verse 14 to 16, but this I admit to you, I worship the God of our fathers according to the way and which is called a sect, and I believe everything that is written in the law and the prophets. Paul proves that he is a leader in the Christian community and that his activity breaks no Roman law. 
And he also says that he shares the same hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Paul said he had come to Jerusalem with an offering to help impoverished believers. Though a follower of Jesus Christ, he had not abandoned his Jewish heritage, calling the Jewish people my nation. Paul discredited his accusers by noting they weren't even present. The Jewish leaders from Jerusalem had showed up, but the actual Jewish people from Asia, Jewish men who had instigated the riot in the temple were absent. Paul's only crime was that he believed in the resurrection, which was not illegal under Roman law. So Governor Felix ordered Paul placed under guard, but with the privilege of allowing friends to be there and to provide for his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, a Jewess. He summoned Paul and listened to him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now, personally and officially, Felix was noted for his evil ways, indulging in every kind of lust and barbarity. The couple, interested in learning about Christianity, had a marital history that was tainted with promiscuity. Drusilla was the third wife of Felix. And I read that she was a raving beauty and at 14 was given in marriage to a king from Syria, but she left him to marry Felix. And in doing so, she defied the Old Testament law about marrying a Gentile. Verse 25, Paul conversed with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix and Drusilla become uneasy when Paul teaches the term self-control because in that area, in that era, it donated sexual purity. It denoted sexual purity. In Paul's teaching, Felix and Drusilla see themselves. And when Paul adds that someday they must face the divine judge the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 10, 42, Acts 17, 31. Felix is filled with fear. Yet he and Drusilla refuse to repent of their evil ways and turn in faith to Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness of their sins. There they were on the edge of being able to receive the gift of eternal life. There they were, dressed in their royal government robes, maybe of finest Persian silk, and perhaps Drusilla was wearing a crown because she had been married to a Syrian king. But in dismissing Paul, they didn't realize that they were forfeiting receiving eternal robes of righteousness and eternal crowns of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 tells us, My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. 
And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, 8, And there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Precious ladies, by God's wondrous grace, those verses are for us. And those verses were for Felix and Lucilla. But yet, and this boggles my mind, despite having two years to be able to constantly visit Paul and learn from him while he was a prisoner in the castle in which they were staying, Felix and Drusilla refused to heed Paul's warnings and to see their desperate need for Christ. And most of us here have people in our own lives that have that same spiritual blindness. So, sadly, verse 26 tells us the only thing consuming Felix's thoughts was his desire to receive a bribe from Paul. And as far as Drusilla goes, one respected commentator writes that Felix kept Paul in prison on account of Drusilla. For just as Herodias, remember her from the Gospel of Mark 6.19, for just as Herodias bore a grudge against John the Baptist, Drusilla despised Paul for criticizing her promiscuity in her marital life. She could not have Paul killed, but she could influence Felix to keep Paul in prison. So our last verse tells us that after two years, Portius Festus, succeeded Felix, and Paul remained in prison. Let's pray. Thank you, precious Trinity Godhead, for all that you have taught us in these chapters. Please allow these verses to help us see ourselves. And please allow these verses to help us see the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.